Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, Spokane County could lower its jail population by nearly 200 inmates during the next five years if it continues with a series of initiatives. That was the message Wednesday to a committee of Spokane criminal justice professionals and advocates. They endorsed recommendations that could help county commissioners craft a jail-related ballot measure. Wendy Ware from the JFA Institute says Spokane is doing what other cities around the country are doing. It's exploring ways to divert people away from its jail and into treatment or other needed services. If it continues with that strategy, she says, the county could see some significant savings. By 2025, there should be a reduction of about 175 beds at a minimum if everything is enacted and sort of put into place as expected. Some diversion programs are already working. For example, a project that pairs mental health specialists with Spokane police officers and sheriff's deputies on patrol has been expanded because it's been so successful. There are other programs in the works or under consideration. One, gleaned from Maryland, would change the jail's booking process into a triage system. Mike Sparber is the Spokane County Jail Director. The individual's booked. They have a magistrate up front, they have pretrial services up front, so if the individual comes in, they have an opportunity to, you know, to um, assess the charge, determine whether or not this individual should be booked into the jail or they could be released on their own recognizance. That could potentially all be done before the person steps foot in the jail. We're kind of looking at some of the, uh, quite frankly, at some portable construction trailers of that nature that you see on construction sites. Uh, we don't need a lot of space to do it. Last year, the sheriff's office performed about 21,000 bookings. Sparber estimates this proposal could reduce that by 3,000 and save the county a lot of money. Some of the other proposals endorsed by the Spokane Justice Task Force on Wednesday are simple and inexpensive, such as texting more frequent reminders to people who have pending court dates and setting up a telephone hotline where people could call to obtain their court information. Others are pricier, such as expanding pretrial diversion programs. Consultant Wendy Ware recommends the county carry out some of these programs before considering a new jail. Construction of a jail facility is always going to be expensive. I think the best financial situation for Spokane would be to put in place these initiatives and then continue to expand on them so there would not need to be any new construction. She estimates the county can expect to spend between $200 million and $300 million for a new facility if it manages to lower its population, $300 million to $400 million if the population remains the same or even moves higher. The Spokane County commissioners will decide which direction to go. Sometime soon, the task force's recommendations are expected to be presented to the board. Nearly a year ago, a developmentally disabled woman in Spokane died after she was given household cleaning vinegar instead of colonoscopy prep medication. The unusual poisoning death was ruled an accident, but now the Attorney General's office is conducting a criminal investigation. Even so, a cloak of secrecy surrounds the death, as Olympia correspondent Austin Jenkins tells us. In Spokane's Chief Gary Park neighborhood is a single-story triplex where people with developmental disabilities live. It's here, in Unit C, that early in the morning of February 27th of last year, a fatal error was made. An overnight caregiver allegedly gave her client, 64-year-old Marion Wilson, a large quantity of Heinz Cleaning Strength Vinegar instead of the go-lightly colonoscopy medicine she was supposed to ingest. It seems really almost impossible to confuse 
those two liquids, you know, colonoscopy preparation and vinegar. This is Betty Sweeterman, Washington's Developmental Disabilities Ombuds. Think of her as the watchdog for people like Marion Wilson. Sweeterman says Wilson's death raises a lot of questions. Why were they confused? Why were they in the same place? How did this happen? So far, answers to those questions have been elusive. In fact, until recently, Wilson's name wasn't even known. That's because when a vulnerable adult dies in Washington, the agencies responsible for investigating what happened, like Adult Protective Services, won't talk about the case or release relevant records. They cite state and federal laws designed to protect confidential health care information, as well as the privacy of vulnerable adults and their caregivers. David Moody is a Seattle attorney who frequently sues the state over its handling of abuse and neglect cases. He says the purpose of confidentiality is to protect the victim. But after a death, he says, it often serves to protect the people involved. This tragedy occurred 10 months ago, and the public doesn't know what happened here. What little is known about Wilson's death has been gleaned from other sources. For instance, the Spokane County Medical Examiner released the cause of death, necrosis and inflammation of the esophagus, stomach, and small bowel due to accidental ingestion of household vinegar. Other details are from an investigation by Washington's Residential Care Services, a division of the Department of Social and Health Services. But Director Candace Gehring says her investigators were not tasked with determining who was responsible for the death. We're not doing a criminal investigation. We don't investigate individual perpetrators. We don't make substantiation of abuse or neglect by an individual. Instead, Residential Care Services looked at the practices of the company that employed the caregiver, Acres Washington. That investigation resulted in a number of findings, including that Acres staff delayed getting Wilson immediate medical attention and withheld relevant information. Those findings led the state to cancel its contracts with Acres to care for clients in Spokane. Later, those contracts were formally decertified based on a history of noncompliance. Gehring calls Wilson's death tragic and unfortunate, but says her division did its job to protect the public. I would say there was accountability here. There was a contract that and a certification that a company had that they no longer have. Acres, though, is still serving clients in other parts of the state. The company is also appealing its decertification in Spokane. In a statement, Acres said it takes the health and safety of its clients extremely seriously and said it was devastated by Wilson's death. Across Washington, more than 4,000 people with developmental disabilities are cared for in their own homes at state expense. But it's a system under stress. Pay for caregivers is low, turnover is high, and the workforce is in constant short supply. Sweeterman, the ombuds, says it's important to learn from what happened in Wilson's case. Because you don't want this to ever happen again. So it did happen. It seems like it could never happen, but it did and somebody died. It's unclear if the attorney general's investigation currently underway will ultimately lead to criminal charges. The caregiver who allegedly administered the vinegar has apparently not spoken to investigators. I'm Austin Jenkins in Olympia. 
NPR is reporting the San Diego School District is suing Juul Labs, that's the company that makes e-cigarettes, for deliberately marketing its product to minors. Public health officials say vaping is reversing many of the gains from years of anti-smoking campaigns. Recently, the federal government announced it would ban the sale of many flavors of vaping products to people younger than 21. The National Association of County and City Health Officials recently criticized that as an ineffective way to keep young people from vaping. Spokane County Health Officer Bob Lutz agrees. When you look at vaping products, you have, again, those that are in cartridges, like Juul, and then you have all the others that are not cartridge. So it's going to the vaping shop and buying a solution that tastes like tutti frutti versus getting a cartridge that tastes like tutti frutti. What the FDA has proposed is that they will only be regulating those that are made and, and distributed in cartridges. They argue that the reason for doing it is to A, really focus on youth, who are disproportionately using those cartridges because they can be done really, you know, covertly. And so in contrast to a lot of the other delivery systems that make these huge plumes of vapor, with the cartridges, it's not there and there's no smell. So they argue that that's one of the reasons why they're doing it. They also believe that they need to allow flavored vaping solutions available to adults because they argue that it is something that's being used by adults to decrease combustible cigarette usage. You look at how states have approached it, Washington State as an exemplar, where we've said we know that flavored vaping products are, again, across the board what people are using. We still question the safety of vaping for obviously the, pro- the issues that we've had over the last couple of months with this vaping-associated lung injury. And we also know that kids are getting turned on by the flavors. Therefore, first do no harm. And therefore, we will assume that until we know otherwise, we want to, again, decrease access and usage of flavored vaping products. I would argue that, that what the FDA has done and through the administration, what they've done is they've sort of taken this middle road and said, you know what, yes, we agree that flavored vaping products are bad for kids, but kids are only using the cartridges. Well, they're not. They're, they'll use whatever fla- flavored vaping product they have access to. It's just that these are more convenient. And so they're opening the door opening the door to, again, lack of regulation and authority, and because they're not going to be regulating what's in that solution. So whereas the cartridges, the large manufacturers, they're saying that you have to have demonstration of what's in your cartridge, but the mom-and-pop vaping shop that are considered manufacturers, there's no way that the FDA is going to be regulating every vaping shop across the nation that's adding a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so again, are they regulating? Yes. Are they regulating to the extent that's really going to decrease usage? I would argue, as does NHO, no. Is the government's move a positive thing? I'd say it's a partial step forward. It's a hesitant step forward. I think that, you know, to some degree, I don't want to say that there's been a lot of pushback. 
there's no question. When the state board weighed in on flavored vaping products, we had 200 plus individuals attend the state board meeting. We had, you know, tens of people testify about how vaping products have been their method by which they've stopped using. I get that. I get that. But I think, again, when I look at the sum total of vaping as a replacement for combustible cigarettes, I don't know that it's necessarily a safe replacement for combustible cigarettes. I don't have the 50, 60, 70 years of research to say that. And so for me, this is a natural experiment. You know, we know what tobacco does. We know what cigarettes do. We don't yet know what vaping can do. And I think there's evidence to suggest that we will see more health outcomes, adverse health outcomes in the future. Does the news about vaping-related deaths and lung injuries do much to discourage people from vaping? To some degree, to some degree. I mean, I think the thing that one has to realize is that nicotine is incredibly addictive. So you look at the fact that the Surgeon General's report came out decades ago, and it took many, many years for people's smoking behaviors to change. And the reality is it wasn't so much from the fact that that education was the linchpin. No, it was the fact that we had policies that increased the cost of tobacco. We focused on secondhand smoke. We had policies that made it, again, you cannot smoke in indoor places, public places. And so there were a lot of environmental factors that caused people to really look at decreasing their tobacco usage. Okay, it wasn't just a health concern. What we're hearing anecdotally is that, yeah, some kids are considering not vaping. But again, given that nicotine is so addictive, we're also finding that a lot of kids, you know what, I need my nicotine. I need my vaping. You know, I've read some stories, I mean, of college kids college kids who are all of a sudden not being, you know, overseen by their parents and getting turned on to vaping because it's cool. And all of a sudden they're finding themselves having to vape repetitively. And the amount of nicotine in these vaping products, especially the salt-based products like Juul, concentrations of nicotine that are far in excess of what you're going to get in a cigarette or a pack of cigarettes. So you're essentially providing the body an incredibly addictive substance over and over and over again. And the body is going to crave, the body is going to go into withdrawal if it doesn't have that addictive substance. So I think it's made a little bit, but not nearly the degree of effect that it could have. Bob Lutz is the health officer for Spokane County. A tiny percentage of the physician population in the U.S. is Native American, and the doctor pipeline from Native communities is providing only a trickle of students. WSU's College of Medicine says out of nearly 22,000 medical students in the U.S., only 44 are Native. To try to stimulate Native young people to study medicine, the WSU College of Medicine and its Spokane campus have entered into a partnership with several entities. They include Oregon's Medical School, the Oregon Health and Science University, the Northwest Portland Area Indian Health Board, and the University of California Davis School of Medicine. Together, they've landed a million-dollar grant from the Indian Health Service's Indians to Medicine program. They call their project Reimagine Indians into Medicine or RISE. Leela Harrison is the WSU Medical School's Senior Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs. 
our mission, a big part of our mission is to produce physicians that will serve this state, right? So that was a big part of our founding. Um, and in particular, we want to impact rural and underserved communities in Washington. Many of those communities um, are in rural areas. They're among um, diverse populations and um, certainly among some of the native populations. And this state is home to many tribes. And so it is. it makes perfect sense that that's a fit with our mission. If we want to impact rural and underserved communities and we want to impact Washington, uh, all of Washington, that, that certainly Native American communities would be part of that. And our idea is that applicants that come from these various backgrounds, whether it's the Native American community backgrounds or disadvan other disadvantaged backgrounds like um, low SES or rural, um, that they have insights that when they come to medical school, they can help their classmates better understand those barriers to healthcare, right? Um, and whether or not they actually go back and serve those communities, which we hope many of them will, they will still be able to help their class, their classmates better understand how to serve those populations. You know, our vision is to inspire people to solve problems in challenging healthcare environments. So we hope that they're going to inspire their classmates to think of ways to solve those problems. Um, and so the more that we can enroll a diverse student body, research tell us, tells us the more diverse the group, the better that they solve problems, um, then we think that that is going to make an impact in the long run in serving all of Washington. So given the small number of, of native physicians, how do you go about finding students who want to come to your college? Sure. So, I mean, I think I think it certainly starts even in the young ages. And so our um, academic and community partnerships team, along with Dr. Bender's team, they're, they're doing, there's a lot of work being done in terms of just getting exposure out there, um, really making, you know, kind of getting into these communities and saying, we're here, we want to help. Um, the um, the WSU Health Sciences um, campus itself and, and out of Dr. Bender's office, they um, put on a, a, a program called Nahashni, and they bring um, high school students that are from Native American communities here for a couple of weeks in the summertime, and that kind of exposure is really, um, it gets them excited, it, it helps them interact with current students and to think, hey, I can do this, this is possible, to really kind of support and, and mentor them. So I think that kind of, those exposure pieces are part of it. And then some of the more tangible pieces are um, actually having programs uh, where those that are actually getting closer to the point where they could be applying to medical school start to really kind of get very uh, close with them as well. And so that is part of this, this RISE grant that we received um, is a big part of that. So it's tangible pieces where uh, we can put on uh, admissions workshops to help them. Let's do mock interviewing, help you with your interview skills. Let's review your personal statement. And are you telling community, uh, admissions committees what, what they, they want to hear or kind of more about yourself, your story? Um, and more of the exposure pieces. I, I really believe that getting aspiring doctors to your health science campus, interacting with your medical school students and faculty is really powerful with any of these groups to help them feel like this is something that they really can do um, and that they have a supportive environment and people to, to help them through that. So you referenced the RISE grant. Tell me more of the specifics of that. It's a big uh, collaboration, actually. And it's the first of its kind we understand that submitted a grant in a collaborative way. Uh, often medical schools you know, alone 
are submit uh, for these grants. Um, and so this grant uh, allows us, for example, uh, starting summer 2020, um, the Elsa's and Exploit College of Medicine in collaboration with um, Dr. Bender's office is going to be hosting a six-week summer program for Native American students. Now these could be pre-med students, but they could also be people that have finished their bachelor's degree and are now thinking about medicine. We, we have a lot of non-traditional students here, so that's not uncommon. Um, to come to campus for six weeks, uh, we will provide an MCAT prep program. And these MCAT prep programs are not uh, inexpensive. Um, they are typically around $2,500 per person to take them. So uh, we are collaborating with uh, um with a um, business to provide that, and then uh, we will provide that free of charge to the, to the candidates that come or to the participants that come. Um, and along with other um, uh, academic preparation, and I think also very importantly, um, um, the cultural tenants that they will, we will plug them in, like Dr. Bender has plans to take them to um, uh, various clinics uh, in the Native American communities to have some exposure, uh, meet some physicians and so on. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of different opportunities with that. So that's one example of that. But another big part of the, the grant is, so OHSU already has, it's called the White East Post-Bac uh, Pathway. And so these are, these are Native American um, students who have previously applied to medical school and weren't successful in getting in. And so they probably need just some more support and, and um, encouragement to continue and maybe some, some enhancements to their application. So they go to OHSU for 10 months in this post-bac program. And then at OHSU, if they meet certain conditions, they have conditional acceptance into their medical school. So as part of this grant, uh, we uh, will, in the last four years of the, the grant, so this will be, um, well actually this coming, this spring, coming, we're already in 2020, right? So this spring we will um, select up to four of participants on our own for Elson Esploy College of Medicine uh, to attend this pathway program and then um, our admissions committee still needs to determine how they want to look at that. But the idea is that hopefully those four or up to four that we select to go through that pa pathway program will come into our College of Medicine. So it's another sort of tangible way we're utilizing this grant to, um, if we say we want to increase Native American physicians, uh, we need tangible ways to be able to help do that. Leela Harrison is the Washington State University School of Medicine's Senior Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs. Inland Journalist Spokane Public Radio's Public Affairs Radio Program and Podcast. Here are past programs at the SPR website and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Send your comments and story ideas to inlandjournal at kpbx.org. Thank you for joining us here in 2020. I'm Doug Nadvornik.